Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Tarot, and today on the podcast, Scott and I are just going to spend some time talking about some things that have been in the news lately and some of the things that we're both working on um, and some of the things that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. So this is just a time for us to chat, Scott. So why don't you tell us maybe a little bit about what's going on and what you've been thinking about? (laughs) Okay. Well, Laura, good to have you. Uh, good to be with you on this uh, on the on the Kingdom Roots podcast. Mm. The um, the story that really hit the uh, fan, as it were, mm-hmm. this week, uh, last weekend, was the ordination of three women at at uh, Rick Warren's church, Saddleback Church in Southern California, and the um, I've been told that these. Women have been ministering in the church for years and years, decades. Yeah. And their job assignment is not being changed, but they're being ordained as pastors. Right. And this is a Southern Baptist church. Um, too big for Southern Baptists to be able to control, I suppose. Yeah. But... Um, the uh, there is a Baptist faith and message, I think, is what it's called, is their mm-hmm. official doctrinal statement that started to be provoked in '84, and I think it was finally signed in 2000. That uh, you know you can't ordain women; women right. are not ordained. And um, so, uh, as it is with all these issues, um, there is a great big uh, annual Southern Baptist Convention where. All the fat cats get together in uh, some some city and go through resolutions. And one of those resolutions will probably be hmm. whether Rick Warren's church is now fit to be associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, this is what people are telling me. I have no idea uh, <laughs> what will happen. But uh, what I understand is that... Um, there is quite a bit of consternation, mm-hmm. and there will be people fighting against it. I've seen some very strong remarks. Denny Burke immediately had to make a comment. He always mm-hmm. seems to have to make a judgment on this. Owen Strahan has come out really strong. Right. And um, that's typical for him. But he's leaving his Southern Baptist Seminary and going to a strip. Ma- uh, plaza mo- uh, seminary. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what that's about. It's not accredited or, yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, so these are kind of odd stories going on, but they all revolve around this whole thing with women's ordination. And yesterday, mm-hmm. um, a really interesting scholar by the name of ja- Jamine Hubner, uh, who I've paid attention to for years for writing some very incisive articles in the Priscilla Papers mm-hmm. connected to Christians for Biblical Equality, in which he has mapped out all kinds of issues connected to complementarianism. Uh, for instance, he's the one who first pointed out to me, although I've, I'd, I'd heard it said, uh, that really uh, worked on how the term complementarian was stolen from egalitarians. People now called egalitarians. This is funny. Um, people like Gordon Fee and 
Rebecca Grutheis and Ronald Pierce, they were they considered themselves complementarians. Yeah. Men and women are designed by God to complement one another. Well, when Grudem and Piper and the crew uh, that eventually became the Danvers Statement decided that um, they were going to have their own view, they, they didn't want to call themselves patriarchalists and even worse, hierarchicalists, <laughs> which is what they are. Right. And so they decided to use the term complementarian which meant for them hierarchicalist and patriarchalist. Yeah. And then the then the Ronald Pierce and Rebecca Grutheis had to uh, edit this book called I think it's called Complementarian Without Hierarchy. Mm. And it is the best book ever written mm. on what is often called egalitarian. I consider the view the best view mutualist because that's sort of what complementarian originally meant. It's not an, an absolute, you know, a, 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 an erasure of distinction between men and women. It is rather a, um, a recognition of equality and complementarity. Yeah. But uh, that word complementarian today means hierarchy. So. Right. Uh, right. Have you have you seen much on these stories? Oh my goodness, yes, and and I I think it it is so critical to point out that these women's jobs are not changing. Yeah. It's it's yeah. simply a change of their title, which is yeah. so interesting, I, you know, and I think it just goes to show that so often women are already doing the work, you know, they're just not being recognized in the same way. Um, so here Rick Warren is trying to recognize these women for the work that they're doing. And yeah. then this is kind of blowing up. And, you know, you it's know, interesting. It's, I, I, uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Though you really can't find in the New Testament um, what these people mean by the word ordination. Mm-hmm. I, I think you can see some ceremony, maybe some oil being applied to people, but it's pretty hard to say that the elders in First Timothy and Titus 1 are ordained. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some kind of ceremony, maybe, uh, yeah. but we don't. We don't, uh, we don't know what it was. So there's not really a biblical argument for ordination. Mm-hmm. But there is biblical evidence of women gifted right. and allowing them to exercise their gifts. Right. And I think that ordination in a Baptist group, you know, I'm in an Anglican, so it's a little bit different with us and um, can make some people a bit uneasy, but... Um, in a Baptist group, you're sort of recognizing the gifts that God has given people and, and that have been affirmed by other people in the church. Yeah. So it's 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 a function that is giving given sort of an official recognition. I can't see I can't see why women shouldn't be ordained in the Southern Baptist Church, but this to them is a slippery slope argument that they borrowed from Wayne Grudem, yeah. that um, if you start doing this, you know, who knows what you're going to be doing next. You know, you'll you'll be buying Camrys or something like that, you know, something, <laughs> something that well, they think is... I uh, was reading something this morning that was talking about, you know, the big thing that Al Mohler is saying is that, you know, we don't want to be influenced by culture. We want to make our decisions based on scripture. 
And someone, I, I don't remember what it was that I was reading, but was making the point of the history of the Southern Baptist Convention that they have changed their positions based on culture in the past in terms of slavery and desegregation, that those those movements were based on following culture um, because they had held opposite positions previously and defended it with scripture. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and to me, I thought, wow, that that's really interesting. And, and yeah, I wonder if you want to say anything about that, 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 following culture and following scripture um, and how we make our decisions about this. You know, there are some cases, um, there are some cases that scripture is, uh, let's just say really clear on. Um, Let's just say this, that racism is wrong according to the Bible. All right. Let's just agree that the Bible, that we are all made in the image of God. Okay. Um, Or let's just say that, the Bible believes that God speaks through humans, okay? If our culture now all of a sudden says racism is right, then we might be caving to culture to say it is, mm. or we would be resisting culture. But what's what's interesting is they use this argument so often. This seems to be um, an instinct, a reflection, a, a, ref, a knee reflex argument that if you disagree with me, you're caving into culture because we're not. But William Witt in his new book, The Icons of Christ, mm-hmm. and Beth Allison Barr and Kristen Kobus Dumay have proven that the New Testament or the ancient world's view of women is not what complementarian is actually teaching. Complementarianism is a 1950s, 60s shift on how women were perceived in culture, and it adjusted to that. So I've often said this about Wayne Grudem's view, John Piper's view, that it's basically leave it to Beaver and Lassie's view of a mother and a woman. It's not a first century view of a woman. In the, you know, that's mm-hmm. not how women were in the first century. So it was a culturally shaped construction that they want to preserve. God bless them. Or as they say in the South, bless their heart, <laughs> right? which is almost never a compliment. But um, it is uh, it is a construction based upon a social period in history, mm-hmm. a period in social history uh, of a masculinist perception, and they want to preserve that. So any notion that let's say egalitarians, mutualists, are somehow caving into culture is an admission that they have caved into culture before these people did in some ways. And we should recognize that almost all of these kinds of constructions are socially shaped. And we want to be integrated in our culture while being, let's say, in the world, not of the world. And they, they use the argument, I think, Way too often, it's become so convenient that um, it's it's deflected by most people the way water is off a duck. Right. The other piece of that that I think is interesting is, you know, this idea of biblical womanhood um, and how many women in Scripture 
look nothing like what they're <laughs> saying is the ideal yeah. of biblical yeah. womanhood. Like you That's flip right. through the pages of scripture and look at the stories of women. These are women that took risks for God, that um, obeyed God rather than human beings, um, yeah. Yeah. that that followed God at great cost to themselves culturally. Um so I just, that always strikes me like there, there, I think there are some biblical woman, women that would look at this concept of biblical womanhood and not be able to recognize themselves in it. So I, I want a true biblical womanhood. I want to see women yeah. following God first and taking risks for God because they love God and they, he gets their first allegiance. I'll tell you, there's a, the funniest. I don't know, a video clip uh, production I have ever heard in my life is by a guy. He's he's connected to Hollywood somehow. He's called Brother Preacher. Mm -hmm. And he has these reflections on, funniest reflections on biblical womanhood. And, you know, it's like Abraham gave his wife away to two different men. That's biblical womanhood. And he oh, goes no. through these funny things. <laughs> Esther, you know, this is a woman, you know, and he, and it's just, it's really funny. There is no 1950s pattern no. for biblical womanhood. The woman of Proverbs 31 is not that role model. And that's no. one of the most extended passages. The, the woman of the Song of Solomon is hardly some woman waiting for her husband right. to come home from work, you know, right. where she's made the dinner. Um, so, and Mary, you know, she charges up to Jesus, kind of tells him what to do at right. times. Um, it's just, it's just, it baffles me, but it, it's the way it is. I mean, Laura, you've experienced this. You've experienced yeah. the rough side of complementarianism in your own calling into ministry. Why don't you, why don't sure. you share a little bit of that? Yeah. I think it becomes very hard for women to identify what to do with their gifts. And I was definitely raised in a complementarian church as a child. Um, I was raised in the PCA, which gave me a lot of great gifts. And I want to be careful to acknowledge that. They taught me to love scripture and to love theology. Um, mm -hmm. But the more that I grew in those areas, the more I loved those things, the more I be became a problem. Um, I remember my youth pastor telling me at one point, because I was reading scripture on my own and I had questions. And so I would get to youth group and I would ask my questions. And he told me at one time that he felt like I was threatening his authority, that I was usurping his authority. Now, that's an interesting phrase, but I think um, he was in my mind... Quoting Timothy, he was giving yeah. you a little bit of Timothy. You know? yeah. yeah, and at the time I thought, no, I, I'm not trying to challenge. I don't want to do your job. I'm not challenging your authority. Mm -hmm. I just have questions. I want to learn. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think, and I've encountered that, and it always caught me by surprise because I thought I I just have a desire to grow and to to serve and to you know follow my gifts, but it seems like. Um, there are places where it seems to be okay. People seem excited about my interest and excited about my gifts until they're not, until it yeah. becomes a threat. And yeah. a lot of times I, I guess I just don't see it coming because I'm so focused on just doing the work, doing the ministry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
until, you know, you find that you are bumping into these invisible roadblocks um, mm-hmm. where you become a threat. And it, it, it just seems to turn and it's hard to know what to do with that. And there have been times where, um, you know, your response is, do I make myself smaller? Do I hide what I know? Do I hide what I'm capable of so as to not threaten leadership? Mm-hmm. Um, and for years, people told me, if you're going to do this, you need to just leave those systems. It's not going to happen there. But I'm such an optimist. I always thought, no, like these are good hearted people. They love Jesus. Um, we can work alongside of each other. Like this will be okay. And then it, you know, has not worked out that way, which is so sad to me because I, I tend to just think it's such an opportunity wasted for the kingdom. Yeah. I think um, to have churches where men and women are serving alongside of each other, where um, women are able to see themselves reflected in leadership, where women know where to go for pastoral care. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think that's such a gift to churches. And it breaks my heart that it's not seen that way, that it's seen as a threat, I think is just really disappointing. But now you're um, you're at a covenant church. Yes. And... Uh... You get to preach and you get to lead. The Covenant Church doesn't. Um, I mean, the Covenant Church has ordained women for a long time, but they haven't yeah. always had women really as senior pastors. Yes. In fact, I yes. think when I was at North Park, I think at, at that time there were like six senior pastors who were women. Uh, there's, yeah. I think there's considerably more now. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard yeah. the numbers. But uh, so now you're getting to do that and, and prepare and, and you're um, – TA at yep. Northern, and yes. you're involved with all kinds of little programs. <laughs> I know, I know, Lynn likes you, and I know Ingrid <laughs> likes you, and they were using you for different things because yeah. of your gifts. So, yeah, I've enjoyed and, uh, it so much. Yeah, yeah. I love doing jobs that I get to learn along the way, and that's that's been really fun. I've been working with seminary now for about a year, and that's fun because I get to review all the video courses and learn from all these amazing teachers, and I get paid to do it, so that's great. And are you doing, writing? Uh, are you writing like lessons and stuff like that? No, I, I I've reviewed them, but I'm not writing them. Okay. So, okay. yeah. And I get to do Kingdom Roots and interview all these amazing guests who are writing yeah. books and learning from them. So all of that, I think, is really pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. So where are you in your program right now? You? I'm finishing my second year. In the M-A-N-T. In the M-Div. M-Div. With a new, and, yeah, new yeah. Testament emphasis. So I'm yeah, kind of so doing, doing both. both. <laughs> yes, that's right. So um, how long before you're done? Yeah, it, it'll depend on how some of the classes line up, but typically it's a four-year program. I, I keep telling people, I hope to do it in three. We'll see. We'll see. Three and a half, somewhere in there, just depending on when I can take the classes that I need. But I'm hoping next year, while I'm doing school, to start ramping up like my career path, which is I'm doing a pastoral internship right now at a Covenant Church, which has been so great. Um, but long term, I'd love to go into church planting. So that's sort of the next step, which is sort of terrifying to admit out loud. Um, but I think that's what God's called me to. And I'm excited to see what that could possibly look like. And there's there's a lot I don't know. Um, but I have a heart for unchurched people or people who maybe have walked away from church. And so I think that would just be a great opportunity um, 
to to uh, reach people with the gospel. Okay, what kind of paper are you writing right now? What, <laughs> I I see this on Facebook. Everybody yes. should follow you on Facebook. What do you, what do you you know? Every now and then you'll line up all the books that you're reading. Yes, so, I'm I'm oh. writing a paper for theology of church and culture. So this is looking at the different historical views of the relationship of church and culture. Okay. Church and state? So, yeah. So it's like the Lutheran two kingdoms view and then the Calvinist okay. view and the modernist view. We had to read Tillich for that, which is a little mind-numbing trying to read Tillich. And yeah, then yeah. Uh, the Anabaptist view. Okay. Well, the... Um did, when you were at Wheaton, did you read Christ and Culture by Niebuhr? Oh, yes. I, at one time, that was every freshman read that yes. book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a good paradigm, set of taxonomy, just kind of sorting things out. Right. Although I don't think people have paid enough attention to Niebuhr's actual theory. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, influentialism or the Kuyperian model seems to rule right. the people who read that book. That's what Wheaton's... Yeah. Yep. I think model is, but um, well, I'll be interested in reading your paper. <laughs> I'm, uh, I have to write it first. I have to write it. So tell uh, me what yeah. you've been working on. Oh yeah, you have to write it. That's right. <laughs> That's part of the process. That's part. You'll of it. learn. I I learn by writing. So yeah. I'm um, I'm doing several things. I mean, little things are always popping up. Like I'm going to write a review of the new translation of the Gospels by Sarah Rudin. Oh, cool. So I'm excited about that. And my translation of the New Testament is at InterVarsity and John Boyd, my editor, is um, working on a process. This is a a monster project for editors. Yeah. yeah. Because you, you can't make mistakes with the New Testament, you know. People are going to use it. If you make a mistake it, in a so. book, people say there's an error, we got to fix it. Uh, in the Bible, it's, you're, you know, you messed up with the Bible. Right. Um and um, so he's working on the process of, of how we're going to have that edited. And that's exciting. We had lunch together last week. Mm. Um, but I, I have two big projects going on right now. Um, I'm writing a book on Revelation yes. called Revelation for the Rest of Us. And uh, one of our, you know, one of our assistants, Cody Matchett, a Canadian, yeah. is, is actually working with me on the book. And um, it's all written, but it was, I think when I was done writing it, it grew to 94,000 words. Oh, my goodness. And the contract is for a book, I think, between 70 and 75. But the editor said to me, uh, my, senior, my major editor said, closer to 65 is better. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's cutting out. That's a yeah, third, shaving off a yeah, lot. Like yeah. a third of the manuscript. And and there are, I mean, uh, when I write, I will also often write uh, all kinds of things that I just throw away. And I have a, a big file of stuff that I save uh, from each book uh, that didn't make the cut, that I cut out almost always. Mm -hmm. Rarely do the, does the editor say, you got to get rid of this whole chapter. Um, so... I'm writing on this, but this is going to be a challenge against uh, what I call, at times, predictive premillennialism or dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. 
which wants to find in the book of Revelation, you know, is this Israel of 1948? Is Russia Gog and Magog? Now, which is from Ezekiel, not from Revelation. Uh, when will the rapture be? Has the rapture already occurred? <laughs> uh, did we miss it? Um, is Henry Kissinger, when I was in college, was Henry Kissinger the Antichrist? <laughs> was Gorbachev, you know, he had a birthmark that oh, right. got him going on the birth of the, the mark of the beast. And, yeah. And so all these people have been identified. And I think that this stuff, I, I got to tell you, I think this stuff is completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And we are misreading the book of Revelation. But the misreadings of the book of Revelation have been so compelling for so long that we have to be very careful about constructing a different kind of a reading of the book of Revelation. For instance, um, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Right wrote the Left Behind series, and I mm-hmm. think they sold like 90 million copies. Of a lot, books. yeah. That's a lot of money and a yeah. lot of books. And I, I talked to the editor at Zondervan who turned the books down. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, we have the NIV, so we've done all right with the NIV. But uh, the um, that stuff is compelling for, for many people. Right. But it is also so pro-American so pro-Israel, it's, you know, it is not inappropriate to connect the insurrection of January 6th with this kind of reading of Scripture. Right. And I'm I'm going to try to show some of this stuff in the book. So um, I'm hoping that people will see that this book is for people who are resisting the power and the seduction of empire and it is a, as applicable now as it was then, and so, mm-hmm. in some ways even more so. Yeah. So I'm working on that. Uh, that's good. I think that's going to help a lot of people because we took that revelation class with you in the fall. And there yeah. were so many times where I thought, oh, my goodness, this couldn't be more compelling for this moment in history to be talking about this right now. Like there were so many times where I thought this this way of talking about revelation is so different than most of us have grown up hearing. Um, it's just it's a very helpful thing to frame it in terms of um, in terms of empire. And the, my big takeaway from that is John, the author, is writing to a particular people at a particular time, and he's writing in sort of a coded language, yep. the the apocalyptic language. What's the purpose of that? Why did he choose to write it that way? And that's an interesting question that we ought to wade into. Like, why did he choose that language? And what was he trying to communicate to these churches that were experiencing persecution and difficulty, like a very intense moment in history where they were bumping up against the empire? Um, He was writing to encourage them, to challenge them, and to remind them that God wins. You know, that's the final story, that Christ is the winner. Um, Yeah. And to encourage them in light of that. And that is so different from how Revelation has been taught and presented. Um, you know, and, and every age, that was one of the things we talked about. Every age, every generation has its own battle with the empire in the sense yeah, of yeah. those sort of empire values um, that we have to struggle against. But we talked about this in class, like 
what we label as empire might be surprising. Yeah. Um, and it yeah. might be a lot different than how churches have presented it. So yeah, I, we look at we look at the uh, characteristics of Babylon. Right. You know, the, where is Babylon today? Yeah. And, you know, um, as I, I said in the class, you have to you have to like where the wild things are by Morris Sendak. Yeah. With, to understand the beasts and apocalyptic literature like uh, Chronicles of Narnia. I haven't read any of Harry Potter, so maybe Harry Potter's that way. Those are big books, man. I can't I, believe I read, you haven't read those. They're the not best. Not a word. Not a word. Although Chris, I think, has read three volumes. I was going to say, don't let your grandkids hear this. Oh, no, over. they've read. Uh, Axel's reading them all. Yeah. And then, uh, like, Lord of the Rings. That's, oh, yeah. It's got apocalyptic dimensions to it. Yes. That's, that's what it's like. So, you know, I don't want to say the book of Revelation is fiction, but fiction gets to the heart. It's art form. So, right. so that's one project. Now, the other one is really um, sort of a, um, I look at it as like the dream job. If, if translating the New Testament was the ultimate dream job for me, yeah. uh, writing task. The second one is I'm writing a study Bible on the whole Bible, but it's wow. study guides. It's called, right now, I think it's called Everyday Bible Guides. Mm -hmm. EBG or Everyday Bible Studies. It's a little bit like Tom Wright's uh, For Bible Everyone. For Everyone. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. It used to be called the Daily Study Bible by William Barclay. So I'm writing a 16-volume um, Everyday Bible Guide. Oh, and wow. I have, I'm going to be writing four a year. And Becky Castle Miller, one of our graduates, yes. is writing the questions for each each book. And the first volume is on James and Galatians. How about that for a strange combination? And I finished the rough draft of the book this morning. Nice. So that's gonna I be did, a big James, project. James is done. Uh, and Galatians I finished this morning. So I still have to edit it and and then my, my editor will look at it. Mm -hmm. And then Becky will write the questions and then I get on to the next volume. So Great. I'll try to write four of those a year. Um, they're 1,000, but most of them are 1,500-word reflections on the passage um, with each book taking on one or some major themes. That's so great. That's so who's your publisher for that one? Zondervan. 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 Oh, that's, yeah. that feels like something that will be extremely helpful to people. Like, I think that's that feels very practical in terms of sit down with your Bible, grab a study guide and sit and read through scripture and thinking through what it means, right. what it means then and what it means for you, you know, in your everyday life. That's so helpful. That's what it's about right there. Mm -hmm. Read mm -hmm. the passage. And then um, I reflect you. I try to I try to keep it to a single theme, keep a unified. But uh, yeah. You know, like James, I talk about wisdom, but, but you know, like a passage could be on faith or it could be on speech patterns. Mm -hmm. uh, and I try to keep it focused and um, both a challenge and, you know, if the passage is a challenging passage, it's about morality. That's what I have to talk about. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Galatians I, has been, I just love doing this one. This was my first commentary was on Galatians in 1992. So this is fun. 
That's good. I used to call that the head bob method of scripture reading. Like you ask a question and then you have to bob your head down into scripture to find the answer. Then you, you know what I mean? Like you're going back and forth, but like, head bob. You sh- yes, you shouldn't be finding the answer anywhere but in scripture. Yeah. You know, like that is, good. you should be looking for the answer there. That's, you know, helping people understand scripture has ev- like, absolute value for your everyday life and teaching people that's where you should be taking your questions. Yeah. yeah. So I hope it'll be helpful for lay people to read the Bible every day. I'll tell you who I've really found fun. Beth Moore. <laughs> she has this book on James. This yeah. big study. She is so funny. I cannot believe. And then yeah. she has one on Galatians, but I haven't looked at it yet because when I look at it, I want to I want to quote her all the time because <laughs> her stuff is so funny. Is that uh, her new one? Is the is the Galatians one the one that she just wrote? I'm, I'm, it, it might I think be it might with be. her daughter Melissa. Yes, yeah. yeah, I've heard such good things about that study, yeah. and and yeah, yeah. she she so, is hilarious. Yeah. yeah, but so I I'll do a little bit more reading, mm-hmm. um, and editing, um. We're going to be gone for a week, and then when we get back, I will. I'll work on it again. Yeah. And by the end of June, I'll send it on to Becky for questions. So that's uh, that's the projects I've been working on. It's a lot of fun, and I have a class in June on the Book of Revelation, and then uh, we start over with some new cohorts coming yes. in. Yes. New, and um, we have uh, you have an announcement to make about a big. Webinar. A big event, that, a webinar yes. that we're going to do. So. so we have a webinar on June 2nd, and this will, Scott will be moderating. And then we have a, three different guests, and it's called Women Transforming the Church and Their Communities. And it's Nicole Martin. I'm really excited to hear from her. Um, and Beth Barr, and then also, also Lynn Kohick. And the three of them will be sharing from their personal experience and each of their areas of specialization and talking about women in the church. So I'm excited about that. It'll be really good. I, I'm, I got to host the, uh, the seminar, the webinar like this that Baker uh, Brazos yes. put on for yeah. Beth Barr and Kristen Cobus Dumay. So this is, this is our attempt to take it to, to um, uh, another level of discussion. Not that, you know, I mean, we're going to continue the conversation. Yeah. And we'll have a little bit more about women of color yeah. uh, and their leadership and, and impact in the community. So yes. June 2nd, it's going to be at 7 o'clock at night. There's going to be announcements coming um, or already out at Northern. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll be seeing tweets and everything and memes and we'll get it going. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Yeah, so check the Northern website for more information about that because it's coming up quickly. But that'll be that'll be fun. Very good. Well, anything else you want to share with us, Scott, before you go? I think that's uh, that's enough. You know, that's I'm enough having, for now. You've got a lot on enough. your plate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's good to, for everybody to get to hear a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you to all of our listeners for spending a little bit of time with us, and we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.